Hello. Hey, John. Hi, Dan Benjamin. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. What were you doing last week? You were all, all over the place. You're on trains. You're in a suit. You had a tie on. John Hodgman was there. Merlin showed up. Adam Savage was there. Nice. <clears throat> it was a. Uh, it was just a geek parade. <laughs> just getting the, the band back together. <laughs> getting the band back together. What were you doing up there? Uh, there was no good reason for what we were doing. No explanation, really. Um, Hodgman was doing a series of shows, and uh, by his own admission, he um, he'd booked the shows with no opener. It was just an evening with John Hodgman, right? But he found, I think, after he'd been on tour for a while, this is kind of the, one of the problems with being a touring artist. You know, you have a thousand friends or you yeah. have 10,000 friends. But really, any of us only has five friends, five good friends. And, um, and so meeting, meeting your 10,000 other friends can actually end up being sort of lonely. You know what I mean? Like, unless you are, unless you are a sex addict type of touring person who is on the hunt, and so you're meeting your friends every night, you're meeting your 10,000 friends every night, but you are actually, like, searching them for someone who's going to s- spirit away with you. Right. Um, you, you meet all your friends and you have the nice conversations and you, you know, you sign the books and you say hello and then you're in your hotel room by yourself and it gets fairly, um, it gets fairly lonely. And so Hodgman was like, you know what? Uh, I maybe made a mistake by not having, by not bringing someone along on this tour. So why don't you just come along? You don't have to do anything. <laughs> uh, we'll just travel down to San Francisco together. He knew that I was just sitting here in Seattle pouting about having lost my city council race. Right. And so he said, you know, let's, we'll just be fun. It'll be like, um, hope and Crosby will, uh, (laughs) you know, he, he said, you can come up to Vancouver and then we'll drive down to Seattle. We'll spend a day or two there. We spent a couple days in Vancouver. Then we took the train to Portland and then we flew to San Francisco. So, Planes, there, trains, and uh, automobiles, for sure. That's right. Yeah. And there wasn't, uh, not, neither one of us, beyond the initial idea, neither one of us made any attempt to justify the the um, extravagance of basically, a, you know, he uh, unless he's on stage, <clears throat> we're just eating fancy meals and, and uh, going around, riding cable cars, you know, having laughs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. when he does a tour like how long is it because when i imagine a tour i think about something it's probably seven weeks long it's a show every night in a different city and you show up in orlando and you're like hey tampa and yeah. then you get booed and then you're like i mean orlando ted nugent yeah. did that that's a rock tour you're thinking of yeah and the reason you have to do that is that <clears throat> you're carrying all your dumb guitars right and so once you get out there you have to just kind of keep going. It doesn't make sense. I mean, there are obviously plenty of bands that fly from show to show, but most indie rock bands and punk rock bands don't have the money to do that. Right. But no, when Hodgman's doing a tour, he go he goes out, he plays four shows, 
flies home, spends a week, two weeks at home making, you know, pig in the holes or whatever, (laughs) toad in the holes. Uh And then he goes out and he does, you know, another handful of shows. He's not, he's not brutalizing himself. Um, But even so, it, um, it wears on a body. Oh, yeah. Let's be honest. Sure. Uh, And, you know, and less so if you are an introvert like me, I, I can go out and do weeks of touring and not, you know, not notice that the, that there's any wear happening on my soul. Yeah. But John's a little more extrovert. He likes, he likes to, he likes to be in conversation with people. And so do I, uh, just, just slightly, slightly different, um, Temperatures, right? Our radiators are, are slight. I have a four core radiator, and he has a three core ra- or two core radiator. Yeah. To use a radiator analogy. <laughs> so when you go out there, he's up. Are you at the shows with him? Are you watching in the audience while he's doing his thing? Do people recognize you? And does it add a certain amount of like prestige to his tour that you're? sort of his roadie with him. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure what kind of prestige I add uh, to anything, but, but, you know, he invites me up at the end to do a ukulele song with him. And, um, you know, we had a, we had a nice day in San Francisco. We had a, a hilarious encounter where Adam Savage and, and John and I were out eating lunch at a fancy restaurant. And the hostess at the restaurant was a, pretty cool lady she had she had cool cleopatra hair and she (laughs) was in a you know in a dress with poofy shoulders that may or may not have been ironic i can't tell uh what the young people's relationship to irony is right it's all ironic if someone my age or some someone in my era was wearing that outfit, it would have definitely been ironic. But now it just looked good on her. Right. <laughs> anyway, and style. That's right. So she treated us deferentially and she was very nice. And then as we were leaving, she kind of stopped us. And, you know, in, you, in those situations, you know, Adam is ready to to say, oh, thank you for liking Mythbusters. Mm-hmm. Hodgman, is, of course, is ready to. And she said, I just wanted to say, John, I really love your band. Oh, wow. And I was like, ha! In your face, nerds! <laughs> Boom! <laughs> Who's the rock star here? Me! Not you guys. <laughs> so that was, that was fun. Well, see, one of our topics that's been, at least has been on my list to talk to you about, and I think this is kind of a good segue into it, is like, what is it like where your job is actually like you get paid to be on a stage performing for people. Like that's how (laughs) a big part of, I would think how you, you make an income for yourself or at least you did for many, many years that way. Yeah. Still do. I mean, that's gotta be something I think a lot of people wonder about, like what, what is that like that your job involves standing on a stage and trying to get get applause really yeah and get people to 
enjoy the thing that you do enough to maybe buy an album or get a ticket next time or talk to their friend about it and say, you've got to go when he comes to your town. Like that's, it's your job, right? And that sounds like something that would be incredibly fun, but also challenging. And like, you know, you, you hear from people whose job it is to be on stage, not just you know, a few weeks a year or months a year, but every day, five days a week, like I always think of Johnny Carson and you hear them interviewed years later and they say, Oh man, I, you know, I've been nervous. I was nervous every single night. I felt like I couldn't go out every single night. And a lot of the things, especially with Johnny Carson, the little ticks, the little mannerisms, the little, the golf swing, other things that he did were sort of his way of like coping with that kind of pressure. But there's also the pressure of knowing that you've, you're out there to like perform, you know, there's a great quote from Bruce Springsteen when he was asked, like, how is it that he gives these amazing concerts where he's, you know, putting 100% into it? And he does that every night, night after night on these long, like, rock tours, like we were talking about. And he said, well, there's always, you know, there's that one kid in the audience who's never been to a rock concert before. And, like, that this one concert, this might be the first time, the only time they get to see one. Like, I want to change their life. It's like, is that, does that weigh on you? Is it easy? I mean, do how, what is it like to have a job like that? Uh, those are, a, that's a lot of questions. All, all, um, well, we've got like two hours. All piled on top of each <laughs> other. Uh, you know, I, I'm nervous, uh, before I go on stage and so is everyone, I think. Um, even the most sociopathic performers <laughs> as you, for me, especially like as I get closer to the moment I walk on stage, the, um, the nerves intensify. So this happens to me all the time. I'll agree to do a show a month from now or three months from now. And then a week out, I start to go, Oh, I got that show. Shit. And then three days out, I'm like, oh, God, you know, and I'm, I, I sort of get in this mindset where I'm like clearing the, clearing the table. Like, oh, I can't, you know, even though that's the day before, I can't really do it because I got that show coming up and I don't want to get all, <laughs> you know, I, I wanna, don't want to get all gummed up. And then as you're leading into the, the day of the show, it's just worse and worse and worse. Plenty of times I have three hours before the show just wanted nothing more than that the show got canceled um because it's just like ah, i guess ugh, bleh. yeah uh but then it all leads up to you're standing on the side of the stage and you are about to walk out and at that point once you step across the rubicon of the stage uh threshold your your fate is sealed right right <laughs> right you, you are at war with Rome. And so then your, your nerves completely transform and it's much more, you know, you're just pouring your stuff into what you're doing and, you know, stuff lands, stuff doesn't. I get frustrated when, when things don't go the way I plan, but you can't, stand on stage being frustrated, you know, you have to keep moving. Right. And, um, and it's exhilarating and it's wonderful. And, uh, and when you're doing well, when you're giving a good performance, uh, 
it's it's wonderful and it's wonderful for it's wonderful to see people having a a wonderful time when i was on tour the first time first well first few times i went on tour with jonathan colton i was um really astonished and impressed with the number of people that came up after the show to the merch table and said this is my first music show and sometimes they'd be 35 40 years old and they had never ever ever been to a music show of any kind and so that stuff is like wow uh thank you thanks for having this be your first music show. yeah but at the same time you know you you know that when you first listen to music, your ears aren't very sophisticated. You don't notice things. You're hearing it all as one big wall of experience. Uh, a lot of people have been listening to music for a long, long time and still couldn't tell you which, couldn't tell you what sound the bass was making relative to what the piano was doing. <laughs> you know, that kind of, of looking into music it's one of the things that when you when you become a a musician, certainly when you record a band for the first time, something in you changes forever, and you can't listen to music the same way. So, when I started writing and recording music, my appreciation of the Beatles skyrocketed. Really, but my enjoyment of the Beatles from a standpoint of just put a Beatles record on and be transported by just the song, the, the, just the glossed over wall of song Mm. that was gone and gone forever. And I remember because I was old enough when I started writing songs, you know, I didn't start writing songs when I was 14 and I started writing songs later. And so I was old enough to notice Oh my God, I can never listen to music the same way now. And something real is lost. I wouldn't trade it. I prefer to hear all the intricacies of how stuff is made. But but it was irrevocable that I could never hear just I mean, even if I'm in a even if I'm in a grocery store and a song is playing, I'm thinking, that's a cool tambourine pattern. <laughs> Right. That's an, well, that's interesting the way the bass pokes out through these shitty speakers in this environment, mm-hmm. in this acoustic environment. <laughs> I wonder if I were listening to this on different speakers, whether the bass would be as prominent or whether it's something about the sound system. You know, I'm thinking that way all the time about music and wondering, you know, whether that was intentional. Right. Like I've talked to comedians who, spend, you know, their, their evenings or even more of their time, you know, on stage telling jokes, trying to get people to laugh. And I think it was, there was a, an, a book, an audio book I was listening to on a long drive about a year or so ago that was uh, born standing up by Steve Martin. Mm -hmm. Great book. Great book. And uh, even, I mean, I love reading and I'm, I'm, you know, I do listen to audiobooks sometimes, but he read this himself, of course. And so he, you got to hear him telling it. It was just great. Wow. One of the things that he talks about, and he plays banjo on it. And one of the things he was talking about was how once he really got his act 
down that he was able to sort of do it and not, I don't want to say it was like on autopilot. He explains it much better, but it was enough so that he was thinking ahead to the next joke or how he might want to do the next joke or which, what, you know, changing up the order a little bit, making these changes like in real time. But he also talked a little bit and I've heard other comedians talk about this too, and that they can't enjoy watching another comedian as much because they're paying too much attention to that, that whether it's the timing of the jokes or the mannerisms or the way the person looks around or how they handle the stage or all of these other little, little details of it that I don't think, I mean, it probably had to take you a while to get to that point though, where you were hearing music in a different way, right? Like the first time you were on stage is different than the hundredth time you're on stage. You would imagine, right? Well, sure. Every one of those experiences, I mean, not every one, but, but there are a lot of those small transformative experiences that, um, that I, uh, that I remember because they hit me like a lightning bolt. Yeah. Um, I was on tour with the Pernice brothers at one point and Joe Pernice is one of the great American songwriters. You know, he has written, he has written wonderful songs and they are out of a, they're, they feel like they've been around forever. Um, and they they have that kind of eternal quality where you where you go these were written and particularly like these were written by this guy this guy from boston who you know sort of carries himself like a carpenter um he's very <laughs> workmanlike about it but i was uh, <clears throat> i was out on tour with them and being astonished every night by their songs and kind of standing on the side of the stage, just examining the craft. And then their drummer, who was a wonderful guy, had a family emergency of some kind and he had to leave the tour uh, in midstream. And so rather than cancel the tour, they hired a friend and session musician from LA, session drummer, <clears throat> called Rick Mink. And Rick is um, Rick also is a you know a songwriter and has his own band and has played in a lot of bands over the years. He was his his band was called Velvet Crush. Uh, but Rick Mink learned those songs on a pair of headphones, kind of on the airplane on the way there. And all of a sudden, I think maybe one show was canceled while while those guys ran through. They rented a practice space in Chicago for a day and, and practiced together. And then they rejoined the tour. And so all of a sudden, we were playing with this band, but they had a, they had a new drummer and, and um, one that hadn't ever played with them before. And it was amazing hmm. for me to watch because Rick is a fantastic drummer and his his take on these songs which i had already been listening to every night and and was very familiar with their arrangement all of a sudden like drum parts which were which i received in one way when they were played by the 
Pernice's normal drummer. There were a couple that all of a sudden they were, they felt like hooks to me. Oh, yeah. The drum, the little drum fill, the little drum part was now a, was now a hook, a feature, a, a thing that stuck out and, and you could hang the song on in a different way. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even maybe the way the song was written or intended. It was, it was something that he was adding, Hmm. you know, and adding, adding to a song that he was just familiar with for the first time. And, he had the confidence as a musician to be able to do that. And I, and I'm not even sure that he was, I don't think he was consciously changing it. He just received that part, understood how it was played and then put his spin on it because that's how he heard it. Right. And I walked away from that understanding the drums differently, the role that they played, how you can, you know, how much you can accomplish, how much musicality there can be in drums. Uh, and a lot of times you, I mean, the majority of drummers, like the majority of any kind of musician, the musicality isn't really what you're taking away. You know, you're taking away proficiency or you're taking away aptitude or speed or technique. And you see all kinds of great drummers where where th- what you're commenting on is technique. Like, wow, this guy's got incredible technique skill yeah but chops chops but musicality is this unquantifiable thing where where a drum part suddenly becomes musical and becomes emotional emotionally affecting and that's what hal blaine was amazing you know and hal blaine and a lot of you know this is the strange thing about artists right we there are a lot of artists out there that we really admire their work and then we learn that they are monsters <laughs> and you try <laughs> monsters to monsters rec- in, in what way well you just the woody allen model or the uh the bill cosby model yeah where it's just like oh you are personally bad terrible uh, um but you have made this wonderful work and how do we separate our appreciation of that work from the person and the and their personality right so it's that it's that other thing the 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 music um that ability like one one of the bands that we came up with was a band called Jesse Sykes and the Sweet Hereafter they were a they these were names a, and these bands are so cool <laughs> yeah. and Jesse Jesse was a again a, a a great songwriter and a very compelling performer and the sweet hereafter and the long winters were on. We were both on the same label. We played a lot of showcases together back when bands that were on the same label all, all would play shows together. Uh, we were around each other a lot, and we felt that we were sort of peer bands and friend bands. And Jesse had uh, Jesse's guitar player. This guy named Phil Wandisher, and Phil had originally been in Whiskey Town with Ryan Adams. He was the original whiskey. He was the Whiskey Town guitar player, <laughs> and now he was in Seattle, and he was the guitar player for the Sweet Hereafter. And the music that he and Jesse made was so emotionally affecting. 
And his guitar playing in particular was just so emotional and emotionally compelling. But when you would talk to Phil off stage, he was a guy that, you know, kind of wanted to get drunk and fight. I mean, he was personality wise. It was, he did not present himself as like, I'm a really sensitive, emotional dude. (laughs) He was much more like, you know, like sort of grease monkey almost like he liked to work on trucks. He liked to, he liked to get in, in bar brawls. He was a pretty aggressive, even antagonistic personality. Right. But then he'd put on this guitar and, oh my God, you know, everybody in the room and he had a particular quality that could not, it wasn't just melting the hearts of people who were there to have their hearts melted, Mm -hmm. but like all the cynical dudes in Pendleton shirts against the back wall also couldn't deny the power of this music and and it, and it, and it, it falls into this category of like we have no idea what the realm of emotions is and and people that can pull that stuff down from the from the heavens it seems like your favorite kind of music or the kind that you talk about with this kind of degree of reverence is the kind that it gets gets to you on an emotional level i mean that's what music does better than anything else i think but like it's one thing like sometimes you listen to a song you're like yeah it's a pretty good song to like yeah good song yeah drive around to or something but like there's this other level it just sounds to me in listening to you talk anytime you talk about music that it seems like you really admire people who can do who can do that who can call out call down those emotions in a way it seems to me like music is the only way we have to speak eloquently in an emotional language. All language, even poetry, it falls short because it is, it's an intellectual language. It's, it's descriptive. It requires that you think. It requires, I mean, if you're, if you, even the most beautiful poetry, you have to, you have to consume and appreciate the, artfulness of the language to to have the emotional impact and, and poetry can inflame your emotions and novels can and paintings can right they can connect with your emotions but the language that they are speaking in is except in the you know maybe in the very top most i mean if you look at um like if you look at a van gogh up close, you're there in front of the Van Gogh. I mean, there are some paintings where you have a where your reaction is is more visceral, but it isn't. It isn't like music. This music is this mixed media, particularly pop music, a mixed media of words and tune and instruments and and so it's. It's much more, it's much closer to what an emotional language would be. And I don't think we've even probably discovered that's the new, that's the last frontier in a way. Like how does one, how do human beings communicate in pure emotion with one another? Right. We don't know how. Music is the closest we get. But, you know, there are, there are a lot of bands now who are 
very uh, intentionally trying to communicate in an emotional language, and it falls utterly flat to me. You know, people, well, emo, for instance, or anyone who's like, I'm emotional. It's just like, (laughs) (laughs) there are plenty of great bands that are where their, their message is like, I'm mad. I'm furious. I'm unhinged. Right. And you go, yeah, that's, that is connecting with me at that, you know, in that strain of emotional language. I'm desperate. I am desperately sad. You know, one of my favorite bands of all time is the bad brains. And they, I don't think I've heard of a single band you've ever named ever. (laughs) And and that's not even my stock in trade, right? There are people that can name bands that I've never heard of. I'm, these are all, I'm not proud of that. I'm, I'm (laughs) embarrassed. I'm embarrassed, but, (laughs) but the bad brains are this band that, I mean, the, the emotional language they're communicating in is utterly unhinged. Really? Uh, but absolutely real and and they affect they affect me emotionally in a way that a lot of their peers you know a lot of that generation of punk rock music doesn't really affect me emotionally because what either i don't feel like it achieved it or i don't feel like that emotion is something that connects with me but boy the uh, the bad brains from the moment i heard them could take me somewhere that that apparently I needed to be. Right. I needed to go there. I remember sitting on my front porch in like 1990 and I was listening to the Bad Brain. I had put the stereo speaker in the window of, my, of the house I was renting. I was sitting on the front porch smoking pot and chewing tobacco <laughs> and watching people walk by on the street and just feeling like, well, it's not going to get any better than this. <laughs> I have a I have a big chew in and I am high as shit <laughs> and I am listening to the bad brains on a sunny day and people are walking by and fuck them and then I look down <laughs> and somehow and I, I this has still never happened to me before or never happened since but my chew cup which was and I'm sorry to this is gross my chew cup which was full of chew spit as we say uh-huh was full of bees <laughs> and the bees were supping upon the oh, chew spit no and then dying of <laughs> of nicotine overdose and so i sat there you know baked out of my gourd while these bees like these lemming like bees took this delicious drink of sugary nicotine juice and then died (laughs) and so the cup like filled up with dead bees oh my god and i was like i don't know what is happening today (laughs) but the bad brains are the perfect soundtrack to this wow Mm. Mm -hmm. but anyway to to, to wrap up your question (laughs) yeah what is it like to perform on stage i mean there what what is it that they've always said that that being on stage in front of people, having to give a speech or a performance is the number one fear of all people. I don't know if that's true. And I don't know, I don't know how you would actually determine that. Most people you ask, most human beings that you ask would list speaking in front of other people 
in their top, if not their number one fear of things they would have to do, it's in their top three, I think, yeah. for most most people. But for those for those of us who are are compelled to do it, somebody asked me the other day, you know, did you have an imaginary friend? Because my daughter has a couple imaginary friends. Yeah. Her imaginary friends are called Lala <laughs> and Unga Kinga. <laughs> and she started talking about Lala and Unga Kinga. Unga Very, Kinga. Unga Kinga. Very soon after she developed a voice, like when she could talk about, she was still like, sort of like Goo Goo Gaga. Yeah. But very definitely, Lala and Unga Kinga were her <laughs> friends. And Lala was the girl, Unga Kinga was the boy. And they varied in age. You know, sometimes they were her age, sometimes they were her babies, sometimes they were older brothers and sisters. <laughs> uh, and then as she developed language more then Jenk appeared Jenk and Jenk was definitely the father of Lala and Unga Kinga oh wow and so there was Jenk and Lala and Unga Kinga and they lived in Paris on the beach oh wow it was like I don't know what's I don't know what past life you are <laughs> living and I don't know what you're pulling down but i so those characters now are are sealed in in my heart forever. But oh yeah. When people ask me, did you have an imaginary friend? I did not. I always had an imaginary audience. Even from a young age, when I was playing alone in my room, like she does, I was not playing with Lala and Unga Kinga. I was speaking to a, to a crowd and explaining things to them and and doing a show for them. And it was always kind of a show that was, it was always a mixed media show, even from, even as a kid, mm-hmm. I, I felt like there, that there was always going to be a crowd of people that wanted to hear my thoughts on matters. But don't and you think I, that that's, that seems to me, I know, by the way, I know exactly what you're talking about when you say that, because I some of my earliest memories are walking around the house with a little cassette recorder that had a microphone and interviewing myself people where I might, you know, interview Superman, for example. Oh, so I sure, would have to play both both parts. And or like I remember family, you know, like holiday times like I would interview my family members on a cassette recorder like in my mind, I was always like, well, I, I like, this is something I really want to do. And I get that sense of like, of an audience. And it's especially useful, I would think, if your job or your goal or your path or your talent is doing something for the benefit of people's entertainment and your own too, right? But like to have that imaginary audience that's present, you all, I would think you would almost have to have that. Yeah, and I, I don't, um, I haven't really talked about it with a lot of other people, but but I, uh, I imagine there's something about a connection with an audience that is as real as a connection with another person, with a single person, and it's an, and in a way like a different kind of depth, because if you're really performing a, a thing that you're proud of that that you 
that you get behind, that you stand behind, and you say, here's this thing. And you have a room full of people, and they're all having their own experience of it. You are getting... It's a human experience that's akin to, although very different, from just being really in tune with with the soulmate or one person. And 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 addictive, too, although that, I feel like, is a different personality type. There are people that are addicted to that interaction with the crowd. and And because they have a predisposition to that kind of addiction their their hearts are are meant or are susceptible to feeling like that connection is the truest and so you get people that can never that can't stop trying to get on stage um and i don't feel that way i definitely feel like my 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 connection with the world that happens on stage is one way and there are plenty of others, plenty of others too. Uh, but I, you know, I don't like to be on stage with nothing to do. And that happens, that happens a surprising amount of time when you're not in charge, when it's not your show, when you're being asked to be part of somebody else's show, a lot of the time you don't have enough to do. What do you mean? Like you're just bumbling around back there? Yeah, sort of. Well, I mean, you know, it's someone else's show, right? So they are the voice of the show. And they say, hey, come on my show and be be the guest. And if it's like a show like Thrilling Adventure Hour, <laughs> they say, come on the show. And then you kind of stand there and hold a script. And then it's your turn. And you go, well, shucks, Marshall. And then it's not your turn anymore. And you're just reading along. Until it's your turn to say, I never. And and you go, wow. I mean, you know, this show is an ensemble. Right. But it usually features one of their featured players. And you're you're happy to be there. You're lucky to be there. But it's also a, um, there's a lot of time when you're just kind of kicking dirt with your shoe up there. <laughs> and you can't really <laughs> run, you can't run off. You're needed in a minute. Yeah. And that's pretty hard for me. I, I, uh, it's like being the sound effects guy on one of those old, you know, stage yeah. shows where all you, you have to do, a, yeah, a horse sound. And then 20 minutes later, the sound of thunder. And the rest of the time, you're just standing up there with a script. But my, my experience of those, uh, Foley artists, and that's right. what that name is. The Foley artist <laughs> is that those guys tend to be technical people, technical show people who really have very little desire to be on stage. They like making sounds and they like making lights and they like making sound, but they also like, you know, all the, 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 um, the moving and the shaking that is required to get a show off, but they don't give a fuck about the, uh, the audience. I mean, their own, they don't, they do not want their own face out there. They are on the engineering side, let's right, say. Right, right. And so, I mean, and using the Mythbusters as, a, as an example, and now that the Mythbusters have, have revealed that, they're, that this is their last season. Right, winding down. All the, you know, all the talk, all the relationship between those guys, it's all coming out now because they, got no, they, they, they don't have to pretend to like each other anymore. And you've got Adam and Jamie 
And they are examples of two totally different types of people, Adam being a showman. Right. And a storyteller and a personality and a and he's also very, very into science and very into discovery, but he communicates mostly through story. And then Jamie, who is an engineer and a and a maker of things. Yeah. Who doesn't have not only does he not have an interest in story, he doesn't really honestly understand the importance of story mm-hmm. or care at all about story. Mm-hmm. As uh, if it were up to Jamie, the Mythbusters show would just be seven experiments in a row. <laughs> and if you want to tell a story about it, fine. Uh, you can do that at home. Right. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. I blew up a tube of gas right. and then I blew up a refrigerator and then I made a robot claw and then I, and the end. <laughs> and, uh, you know, or like, here's the, here's the question. Do, do ghosts exist in, uh, people's, uh, radiators? Here's how to test it. We blew up a radiator. Turns out no ghosts inside. The end. The end. Every show would be three minutes long. Right. Um, and there are a lot of people like that in show business. And what's funny is that the, that the, the performers, in most cases, the only people they really have to interact with are these other people who are largely aliens to them. Right. And, and you see this on tour with big bands where the four people in the band are total freaks, right? Just like they're, they were freaky people to begin with. And then they became big stars and it just concentrated their freakiness so that they are otherworldly performer artist types. And then their entire support crew, which is 80% of the people that actually travel with them. Right are all, um, you know, leather man carrying, detail-oriented, checklist-oriented technical staff. And so the backstage of these, of these big tours is bonkers. There are, there are four people in feather boas and G-strings walking around, and then <laughs> 80 people in black jeans with with like uncombed ponytails <laughs> right and you just go wow no wonder it's lonely out here and it's why people it's why performers bring an entourage with them because you imagine Miley Cyrus sitting at a picnic table backstage at a at a stadium eating a craft services dinner and all the tables around her are people talking about the ohm ratings of speakers right and you know and whether or not they can get the rigging up with the you know with the with the current winch and so she's like jesus christ i've got a little bit of money i'm gonna bring some i'm gonna bring some friends on the road some freaky people out here to just to just party with me make me feel like not such a such a weirdo in that environment and so that that's that aspect of show business that it couldn't show business could not happen without the technical people. They are the whole show in right. a way. Right. But a lot of them are just naturally kind of confused and contemptuous about the 
the actual show, <laughs> you know, the actual like, why are people here to watch this? Uh, because this person is going to go out on stage and bare their soul. Right. That's interesting, but they, you know, but their job is to point the lights at it. And it's, I mean, I've had some crazy conversations with, uh, with people over the years where you're just like, wow, it's really, it's two utterly separate worldviews that come together in this and, and in, uh, you know, a lot of other creative enterprises, but, um, but you know, in the tech world, it seems, and I don't know that much about it, but it seems like the, the tech people have really established that they are the dominant class the technical people and that the creative people have been sidelined to a certain degree as the window dressing side, the user interface side, which the technical people are, they need, they recognize they need it, but it isn't primary. And, you know, and that's why I still feel like the whole tech world and the internet world is still in beta. Because it's dominated by the engineer class, and 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 it ultimately will be dominated by the by the creative class. It's just that that this is a interregnum period where it hasn't sh- it hasn't shaken down exactly what we're using this stuff for yet, right? And so. So Apple will put out like, oh, here's Mac Paint. You can draw, creative people. Go ahead. Make a smiley face. Isn't that fun? Don't you feel, I guess, validated? That's why you bought the thing. But, but, but behind the scenes, there are 4,000 people going. So I think that's and, a fantastic observation that you've made. And I think you're right. You know, when you think about just pick pick one little subset of what happens on the internet like like blogging you know the first people to blog were people who understood like i get how servers work on the internet and i can code in html and i can use ftp and i can uh put graphics in tables and make the borders invisible and design a page like that's what it took to put something even just a paragraph like that's what it took to put it on the internet and And as those barriers kind of fell away, now you can just go to one of a bazillion different sites and start posting something and it'll look great and it'll work on every device and everything else. And like as those technical challenges start to fall away, that kind of paves the way for the creative or more creative people who don't know about and don't want to be technical to kind of put their thing out there. But the internet as a whole is still like a super technical thing. And it's this dominance, this sort of tech dominance that you're talking about, that these are the people who are still involved in like building the stuff. I mean, I think I agree with you. I feel like we're still at the stage of like, we're past the inventing the wheel stage, but we're really, really far from the combustion engine stage. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 so much of uh, so much of what's still on the internet is, I mean, a lot of the most popular blogs are technical blogs, right? And people, tech people talking to other tech people. And I've had I've had two really interesting conversations in the last two days, where women came to me and said, 
I want to podcast. And um, you are my only podcast friend. Can you tell me how to do it? Because I, you know, one of them is um, one of the people is Amelia Bono, who started the uh, "Shout Your Abortion" campaign. Right, and she's a good friend of mine, and she wants to. She's had a lot. She was on ABC last night, or she was on Nightline last night. Like "Shout Your Abortion" has has uh, connected with people, and she wants to be a part of that. She wants to take that conversation to more people. And to have it be more than just a hashtag. And so she, she rightfully, I think, said, I want to be on some podcasts. I want to talk at length with people that are interested in this. And so, uh, you know, and she was like, so which podcast should I go on and what should I do? And I was like, oh, my God, I am. A, I understand why you're asking me. I am your podcast friend. There are still technical hurdles to overcome, to surmount, in order to put your own podcast up there. Right. And I don't fucking even know what they are. <laughs> I, I have two podcasts that I do with two guys, and I talk into a microphone, and then, I, and then it goes away. It goes into space, and Dan and Merlin both go, beep, boop, 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 and then the <laughs> podcasts are up in the world. Right. That's it. And, um, but I don't know how to do that. And honestly, there are a lot of lot of podcasts, but uh, but uh, but many of those people only want to interview somebody that's there in the studio with them. Um, it's still a it's still a world where there are all these just sort of what seem like basic te- technical challenges. Right? How do you get a podcast up on iTunes? I couldn't answer that question if there was a gun pointed at you. <laughs> if you put out a podcast, does someone from iTunes come and? knock on your door with a clipboard and say, we hear you do a podcast. Would you like it on iTunes? Or is it some, is it some other music business thing where there's payola involved? I don't, beats me. And so she, so I'm, I'm trying to help her and I'm sending emails out to people like, what would I do if I had a friend who wanted to do a podcast? Uh, and then yesterday, my sister came to me and she said, I would like to start a podcast where I do a half an hour of my sister is um, is a, a photographer and she knows the technical language of photography right but what really interests her is uh, is this realm of um, what would you describe it as uh, not new age spirituality because that implies a certain kind of thing but she but my sister is a spiritualist and believes in the interconnectedness of the universe and believes in the power of self-affirmation and believes that you can harness the unseen powers of the world through the power of positive thinking and the power of um, manifestation. And so she is, she's, she has a lot of sort of aphoristic uh, views, aphoristic things to share with people. And she wants to do a 30 minute podcast where she says, she gets on, I said, are you going to interview people? She was like, nope. I said, are you going to have a co-host? Nope. I said, you're going to do a half an hour of just you talking into a microphone about how uh, everything in the universe is interconnected. And she said, yep. Mm-hmm. How do I do it? Right. 
And again, I was at a loss. I, and I see podcasting blowing up. I see people really wanting to do it. It's a fantastic platform and opportunity for, for people to have a voice in the world. But there's still this barrier to entry. Well, see, and I'm not talking about podcasting specifically, but I think, I think that the people with the technical knowledge, the people in tech, a lot of them, some of them, want it that way. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. That that yeah. it, it that they're maybe they're they're happy that it's like that. Maybe they're happy that they sort of hold the keys. I'm not saying that they, that they're trying to make it that way, but they're certainly not doing anything to change it or uh, or or struggling to get those keys out there to everyone. A lot of a lot of people, or they're saying, "Well, you know what? We'll make a service." Or we'll make a product or we'll build an app that lets people do this, but they'll do it our way and then we'll, we'll own them. Well, sure. Yeah. And, and that's what I mean by the, by the tech world or by the internet still being in beta. I don't think the tech world is in beta. I think the tech world is having its ascendant moment. This is the, you know, this is um, Vichy France or not. I'm sorry, not Vichy France. It's, um, it's Weimar Germany. Right, like the tech people are having their jazz parties and building their Bauhaus, um, you know, public plants, and just having a fucking orgy of XT- XHTML. Yeah, <laughs> and none of them see that on the horizon is a is a wave of all the people in the world who are kind of on the other side of the fence saying, we want access to this now. Yeah. Beyond just having a Facebook page, uh, we want to dance and sing and play in your magic world that you created and sold to us. You have succeeded in making this the ground now. This is the, this is the unoccupied playa, and we are ready to fill it with our burning man of, of human nonsense Get the fuck out of the way. And the tech world is like, do 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 You know, uh, there's got to be a way that we can have an initial public offering. Right. And, uh, or, you know, like our first round of funding has been very successful. And we're building an app that lets users choose which color of butterfly to adorn their... And it's just like, you are about to burn down... Uh, and also, and you're going to burn down by the thing, by the very hand of the thing that you made and built. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, and I honestly can't predict what that internet is going to look like and where, where those two waves of, you know, like the, the internet ugliness is already starting to wane. It feel it's it is at its peak right now, and so it doesn't feel like it's starting to wane. Mm-hmm. But enough voices are saying enough, enough. We have to fence this off. We have to corral this ugliness somewhere because this cannot be the language that we uh, that predominates our what is what is effectively going to be our reality. Um, and I don't, you know, I can't. I'm not enough of a, a, um, a science fiction writer to, to know exactly what, 
what it's going to look like when we're all in there and we're all free. But it isn't going to look like it looks now. And, um, you know, and it will, it will be, and the tech people are right now building the rope that will hang them. Mm. And that's, um, that is very exciting to me. Even speaking as someone who's uh, basically all of my friends now are tech people. I just can't wait. I can't wait to, uh, to kill the king. Because I am an artist. Je suis un artist. And I want, to, I want things to be written in emotional language. And I recognize that emotional language is unintelligible, first, A, and terrifying, B. And we don't have good, there's no Rosetta Stone for it. We can't translate it yet into words very well. But that is the frontier that, that interests me even and 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 space exploration interests me too right but but that is the inner space um frontier that nobody's really talking about right now but it's but it's there our uh, our sponsor in fact our exclusive sponsor for this episode is hover hover.com when you have a great idea you want to get a good domain name for it now you want to get a great domain name for it you want to find the perfect name, the one that represents your project, your product, the thing that you are working so hard at making. And you want something that's catchy. You want something memorable. And you want something that's easy to type and feels good to type, right? Even when you say it out loud. Hover makes it easy to find the domain name. Because look, let's face it, most of them are taken, right? Well, actually, that's not true. There's a whole lot of domain names and tons and tons of great TLDs, these extensions that you can get. Not just .com and .net. Not just like the .uk ones, but you can get the really cool ones, .design, .fm, .tv, I mean, you name it. They're all out there. There's even a .pizza. But you can get them all at Hover. They have a free valet transfer service, so you can skip the hassle of moving your domain names over from other registrars if you find that you like Hover best. They have no wait, no hold, no transfer phone service if you need help. And they've got a new feature called Hover Connect. So like the great thing about Hover, you have the freedom to choose what hosting service you want, where you set up your website and how you host it, whether you want to make an online store with Shopify or like a beautiful website with Squarespace, anything that you have in mind, all you do is click one button and they set it up for you. You don't have to like copy and paste DNS records and all that nonsense, read articles and it's just done. They just do it. It's amazing. And... You can get 10% off your first purchase by going to hover.com and the code to use, one word, all the great shows, all the great shows. So use that at checkout, hover.com, all the great shows to save 10% off your first purchase. Thanks very much to Hover for making this show possible. When you talk about emotional language, I think it's something that everyone relates to and understands sort of intuitively what you mean, but can't really put their finger on it. And it's something that's kind of very easy to either on, on, on the one extreme deny and say, well, that doesn't, that's kind of stupid. Like who cares about that kind of crap? <laughs> and then the other side of it is something that you often hear CEOs of startups talk about at their shareholders meetings or when they're announcing a new product, talking about how their, their product or service or app 
is the emotional connection. It provides the emotional connection. It allows for a deep, meaningful kind of new kind of communication that didn't exist before they launched version two of their app. <laughs> you know what I mean? That like, it's, it's either something that they're going to downplay and sweep away. And so that doesn't matter. That's for, you know, that's, that's for poets. Right. Or it, it's something they're going to exploit. It's, right. It's something that, that, that they're building. It's a feature in their app. Yeah. But, but that, that feature in the app, uh, language is also very dismissive of it. It is, you know, they are trying to sell their product to these dummies, you know, wh- who they perceive to be the consumer, right? Who wants to have more emojis. And so here's our app, and it lets you, it lets you dress your emojis in your own customized clothes. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Give us $1 billion. <laughs> and and they'll like, get it. They're going to get yeah, it. Oh, they absolutely will. But what they don't understand is that ultimately those, those emojis dressed in those customized clothes are going to become a language. And, that, and what is communicated in that language is not what they think is, it is. You know, that that, that language will begin to communicate a, a, a thing that we don't we currently don't have the language for and so nobody knows what, how transformative that's going to be and you know even when i was growing up but particular and it's and it's still true today emotions are thought of as um something to be i mean as, as something frivolous something that because it can't be controlled or codified is meaningless, something to be overcome, something to be suppressed. Like we're all and, working toward like being Vulcans basically. Yeah, well, yeah, we're trying to be, we're trying to have demonstrable, measurable, statistical knowledge, which, which enables us to get things done. Bridges get built. Uh, tests are conducted. <laughs> Uh, results are published. Yeah, and and what has happened is that that cult of results, that cult of uh, demonstrability, has infected the liberal arts. Uh, right, psychology, which at one level was, I mean, the the invention of psychology, the introduction of the notion of psychology, was a an an early step, a toe in the water. Here we go. We recognize that there is this, this world inside our heads that is not empirical. And let's talk about it. Let's, let's discuss it. Let's examine it. But immediately psychology was infected with the disease of measurability or the expectation of measurability. And so psychology, in my estimation, became a pseudoscience. Because you cannot measure these things using yardsticks. You cannot talk about them um, in those terms. And then that measurability, that desire to measure, infected the social sciences utterly. So that we, I mean, the notion of rating a, a piece of music 
and particularly cataloging your music collection according to a five-star rating. These are my five-star songs. These are my four-star songs. It's like, no, no, uh, no, those aren't. You are, you are doing a thing. You are measuring things, but that isn't how we actually receive that information. And that isn't what's important about it. Right. And, and so all of the social sciences, all of our notional ideas about who we are and how we interact with each other, we have suppressed the actual language that we use to interact with each other, which is our emotional language, which we don't understand. Privileging data, which, isn't, which doesn't reflect the truth. So we're making all these decisions and have been for decades about how we understand ourselves and one another according to you know according to the metric system and it's just it's it's laughable and it will one day be laughable is the thing yeah. it isn't laughable now we don't know, we don't have another way and we're, we've spent so many many uh because before the invention of these things and these are thought technologies right before the 19th century it was it's like that period before the invention of the teenager we talk we talk about like 19 19- 30 or 1922 the notion of a teenager arrived on the scene and by 1950 teenagers were a real thing yeah but before 1922 there were no teenagers you were a child and then when you could lift when you could lift <laughs> enough material that you were useful to the farm <laughs> right you, you became a, a useful person right you know? when you could make a child and lift a bale um you were no longer in school and you were now at work. Right. And the same is true of our understanding of the mind. I mean, there has always been art and beauty and emotion in human life, but, but never this sort of psychological understanding of, of, and, and again, like codification of mood and, and motivation and, you know, and memory kind of the way that we have it now. And that's, that's a, that's a fantastic first step. We're just completely up, a, up a blind alley in the way that we're interpreting it. And I think a hundred years from now or 500 years from now, they'll look back and go, Oh, those poor monkeys right. playing with fire still, you know, like, and and not understanding that that w- we have already transitioned into the era of electricity and and fire isn't like m- metaphors of fire or the language of fire isn't useful in uh, interpreting electricity i don't know let's go to viewer mail you want to do some viewer you want to do some <laughs> listener mail uh, I don't know. I've never, you know what, Dan, I have never made a segue like that in my, in the, all the years of podcasting. Uh, well, I mean, first time for everything, right? Well, it feels like road work is a different model and, it, and, and we we can say things like now let's go to viewer mail. Yeah, let's go to it. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't do that. It feels like there should have been some bongs in there. <laughs> bong, bong, bong. That's a little sound effect or something. Uh, let's go to viewer mail. <laughs> bong, bong, bong. <laughs> Well, we do have a lot of it, mm-hmm. and I have forward. I will 
periodically go through and as it comes in, I will, I'll forward it your way. Do you read the mail or do you, do you not read it? I think that when it comes to viewer mail, I prefer, I prefer to just hear it for the first time on the show. Right. I don't want to, I don't want us, you or I really to get into the habit of like preparing a response. You want to be off the cuff, very natural. Well, yeah. I mean, the viewers are, I don't know how much time they're spending. I can't, how much time they're spending composing their question. I can't, uh, I can't picture the, the roadwork viewer. Right. I'm, 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 I'm thinking it's somebody in Kansas City. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wearing a plaid short sleeve button down shirt. <laughs> um, pretty fit, but not necessarily. Like, are you, are the, do you feel like people should be in good physical condition to listen to the show? No, no, not, uh, not necessarily. I'm not in good physical condition. Why, why could I, why should I impose that on somebody? But you I think seem very strong though, like just naturally. Oh, I'm strong. Yeah. Don't, don't mess with me. I will, I will literally lift you up and then immediately put you back down. Right. But I will lift just you up. Just as a demonstration. I feel like a road work viewer is living in the mid, mid part of the country whichever country it is like in the middle of germany let's say oh wow okay in the middle of the united states and they're curious about the coasts they want to visit the dynamic coast but they're also pretty comfortable living in the middle part of the country because they feel like other people don't understand the culture as well as they do there and that there's actually a lot of exciting possibility in the in the middle part that the uh that the people on the coasts are fairly like pre- presumptuous about, right? But I'm I'm I may be I mean every roadwork listener may be living in San Luis Obispo. Oh, it might be the we, we might have eighty percent of the population of San Luis Obispo listening to the program mm-hmm. and no one else. I think people who are writing in from now on, they should share that. They should share what they're mm-hmm. wearing mm-hmm. and where they are. Well, share your location. That's right. Yeah. Well, don't make us go to your Twitter Twitter bio. Yeah. To see whatever funny joke, whatever funny location joke you've put in there, Madagascar or whatever. Uh-huh. Make it real. <laughs> Tell us where you really are. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's hear what people have to have to say. All right. This one is from Steve, mm-hmm. and because we weren't asking them. Where they were, I don't. I don't know where Steve is. Steve could be anywhere. Steve could be anywhere. He his his actual his actual name could be Stavros. <laughs> right. Yeah. And he just anglicized it to Steve. Steve says, "Greetings, Dan and John. I started listening to this podcast when released. Just got into podcasts. I enjoy it. See, now I would have thought that this podcast would be for people who were very well seasoned." Podcast pros. Podcast pros, people who understand how to how to find, handle, and perhaps polish a diamond in the rough. Uh-huh. But he's a new podcast listener, and this is his introduction. So it's just like the Jonathan Colton uh, kid yeah. who's never been to a music show. That's right. I enjoyed specifically the stories about John's pilgrimage through Europe and his opening at the new mall and Dan's dead possum in the house. Really good memories to share with us. Two questions, technology-based, and a comment. And I, I believe both of these are directed for you. 
should we start with the comment or does the comment is the comment like based on the questions? Uh, no, they're separate. Okay. All right. But we can do the comment first. Listening to John talk about the interconnectedness of society and the role the internet plays. I'm sure we all agree that introducing children to electronics and that internet sublevel from a young age can be damaging. That's the comment. He's well, it, it continues, but I oh. just, I'm pausing there because I, I don't know if I do agree with that. John nice. sees a lot of potential in social media and the internet, but some argue that it has clearly that's in caps, clearly done more harm than good. Mm-hmm. I agree with John's prior takes on the law. I run reds too. When it's safe, Never speed due to my own rollover at 22. This is a long comment. Yes, but I oh, he's, feel... He's rolled a car. Yes, he has rolled a car, age 22. I have also rolled a car, <laughs> and I was also age 22. <laughs> but I feel cameras at every major intersection on, co- on cops' bodies and federal regulations of the internet are ruining the American lifestyle and particularly privacy. Few, oh. also in caps. Question is... Do you think when it is all said and done, the internet and this age, capitals, of technology will be viewed as a positive or negative to human culture? Countries have always had culture that they protect and pass down throughout the generations. What is America's culture today that I would pass down to my kids? Question mark. Is it emojis and Instagram? Side note, I use neither. <laughs> wow. That's the comment. That's quite a comment. Yes. And and it actually touches on a lot of the things we've already talked about. Today. Yeah, very interesting because this was just the email that uh, that had just recently come in. You claim to not have read it. Mm-mm. And uh, so it buttresses well against our topics for today. It does. That's that's uh that was that was a little bit of time travel. Yeah. Um but I, I do think the internet and the surveillance culture even are fait accompli. And what they are is yes, this is a this is a transition moment where our idea of our ideas of privacy and what um and what we traditionally think of as our personal autonomy mm-hmm. and separateness from one another and separateness from the government and from institutions and from from businesses that that is all changing and and in a lot of ways that autonomy is going away. It's going to be more and more a case where if you choose to live outside of that, you will be living um, an, a, a very different style of life. And the people within the, the Borg are going to feel like you are living in an impoverished life. Right. Like a Unabomber situation. Right. And, and, and there, that's always been the case in all of human civilization. The people that live on the edge of the village or choose to live all the way out in the forest, you know, they can come into the town and resupply. They can come into the town and, and uh, listen to a music show and then go back out to their forest cabin. But as time goes on, they're less and less able to come into the village just because the sights and sounds are too overwhelming. They don't know the protocol. They be, they're beer Borg system where your bank account and your identity are going to be more and more synonymous. Right. Credit rating and your identity are more and more synonymous where you are visible and your location is visible and your, and who you are, who you've chosen to present yourself as is, is not only visible, but it, it, um, it pres- presages your actual 
personal self. Like people already know everything about you, uh, even as they're meeting you. It just pops up in their heads up display. Like right. this person, <laughs> ha- you know, here's their resume, and also here are some interesting things about them, and also here's their credit rating, and here is their, you know, like. Uh, I think if you choose to live outside of that system, you will be much more estranged than just being a hermit living in the forest because you won't understand how to how to interface your if you do try to rejoin the system, your interface will be mostly blank, and people won't know how to interact with you. You say this and, like it's a bad thing. But not necessarily. I, I feel like I feel like it is an inev- an inevitability, and that what we need to do is is see it coming, understand all of its ramifications, and know and decide for ourselves what. I don't think it's like which stuff to opt into because I feel like opting in is going to be mandatory, right? But rather, if we can collectively say. You know what? Here's where we draw the line. Here's where we draw the lines. And how do we keep how do we keep technology from being a very different experience this this interconnectedness from being a very different experience for the haves than it is for the have-nots. Like if your credit rating is an integral part of your status, which is what the technology world would like it to be. Oh yeah then you create separate strata of access and of the world, uh, access to the world for people and it, and it much more exaggeratedly than now. So now it's like, Oh, you live in a gated community. You fly first class or in a private jet, like you are separate. Right. But when you're on the, when you're on the highway between the airport and your house, you're on the same highway as the rest of us. Sure. Um, but this future world offers limitless possibility for for people of higher status to be on a completely other highway. And if we don't if we don't perceive that and and decide what we want that to look like in advance, if that isn't baked into it, then the then the then capitalism will just decide. Um, and it won't be anybody's one decision. It'll just be like, oh, well, it turns out that genetic engineering and um, and healthy food are only available to people with a 700 credit rating or better. Right. Or Yeah, and that's, that's the part that I think makes most people very upset. Yeah, it's, hap- it's going to happen, though. And so the question is, can we intervene because the people, presumably some of the people listening to this program are the people who are going to be building the architecture of that system. Mm-hmm, sure. And they're not, they do not have currently a feeling that they are emotion. they are, I'm sorry, uh, they are morally culpable because all they're doing is uh, they're, you know, they're writing some code for Uber or they are working in the legal office. Right. And so it's not their responsibility. They're just, uh, they're just doing their job. They're just following orders. But that moral culpability for building this world, which, you know, which the internet capitalists would tell us was morally neutral, right? Let the market decide. Uber is morally neutral, even though passengers have ratings. Yeah. 
And you presume that that means that if it isn't already happening, it certainly will, that passengers with low ratings are left waiting in the rain. And well, and it's the whole, you know, the, it, there's that old saying, the rich get richer, but it's, it's true. And also, like, the people who have a lot of Twitter followers are going to get more Twitter followers, and they'll get more of them, and they'll get them faster than those of us who don't have lots of followers. You know, it's, yeah. that's exactly what you're saying, and that the person, if, if there's an Uber driver who's equidistant between two passengers, and the fare would be exactly the same, if that's even a factor— and they see one has a rating of five, one has a rating of four. Well, they'll, they'll go get the one with a better rating, and that will further increase that one person's rating. Right. And, and, what, and if we are actually headed toward a world where the Uber model is the only way to get from place to place, because it has supplanted cars, a personal ownership of cars or even public transit, then what you'll end up with is there will be top-tier transportation. And then if you have, a, if you have below a 4.7 rating, you will only have access to lower-tier systems. And then there will, be, there will be budget transportation systems, which take longer, are dirtier. I mean, it's, it's effectively what we have now, but just exaggerated and much more explicitly stratified. So there will, be, you know, there will be transportation options for poor, disabled people, but they, you will be in the slow lane, let's say. And when you imagine this world of hyper-fast movement and total interconnectivity, that slow lane has, has much greater potential for abuse and... and um, and, and, and it will be a much darker world uh, for people that don't have access. And we see it already in, in all these nascent ways. And all you have to do is extrapolate from, from that, from the increasing sort of denial of access and just say like, well, this isn't going to stop. Nobody's going to say, wait a minute, uh, altruistically, I'm going to build a system that that makes me less money but is more utopian i mean yeah. people will right but like google right now is available to everybody equally nobody can google things more effectively <laughs> than other people can google things right but that will be the trend uh, you know unless we unless we talk about it and agree and the people that are building it build it better than they're currently doing we cannot let the market rule us it is not the market is not a pure and and morally neutral system no i mean that's my that's my uh take at least okay so i, think it's, uh, I mean it's scary and i think you're probably right but there's a second part to this email mm -hmm. that i, I think bet. is uh, equally important he says, uh, lastly, John, eat a sandwich. Hmm. It's a peanut butter and fluff sandwich. No, no. It is truly delicious compared to the honey stuff from your childhood. You will love this. No. I, you know, I was at XOXO and there were fluffer nutters there specifically brought there. For you. In, or, in order for me to eat them. And I avoided them the entire weekend 
I never even saw one. Those fluffer nutters were being schlepped around. Someone was waiting to corner me in an alley and stick a fluffer nutter in me. And I somehow used my ninja powers to not even see a fluffer nutter. So I think I, what I think because when people listen to you on the show, at least, or when I listen to you on this show and, and the other show, and I listen back, I, you seem, you strike me as a down to earth kind of person, a person who is, I mean, the kind of person who would, who would, chew tobacco and smoke pot at the same time is not someone closed off to experience. Highly recommended by the way. But you're open to trying things. It sounds like, and yet this, you won't try. And I think that's that people are, are, they don't understand it. I don't understand it, but people don't understand why you wouldn't, you know, try. Like if, if I, if I said, you know what, we have vanilla ice cream and you're like, well, I like vanilla ice cream. Like you can, Amp this thing up big time if you put this like chocolate fudge on top of it. You'd be like, I'm all about that. Let's try it. I've never tried that before. But for some reason, the combination of fluff and peanut butter, you say no to that. And I think people don't, they don't get it. They're like, this is a guy who's going to put anchovies and pretzels on his pizza Maybe potato chips too, right? Like he'll try that. Maybe he'll like it. Maybe he won't. He might say, oh, that was terrible. I'm never trying that again. But you would do it, but you won't try the fluffer nutter. I'm not, I'm not saying you should try it. I'm just saying I think people hear that and they get confused. I've never, you know, I'm an Elvis fan, but I've never had a peanut butter and banana, <laughs> a grilled peanut butter and banana sandwich either. Why not? Those are great. I feel like I know what peanut butter tastes like. I know what bananas taste like. I know what a grilled sandwich tastes like. Yeah. I've got it. I've got. I've got the taste in my oh, mouth. Oh, so you don't. You're you're above tasting it. You're beyond tasting. So I don't. So I don't need to taste it. <laughs> you don't need. And to I t- feel like <laughs> peanut butter and fl- and marshmallow fluff. I you know. I'm All right. Pretty, I pretty much have it. I. You I, know what? Actually, I. Un- I think you probably do have it. Now maybe maybe there is some umami. <laughs> that happens when you mix those things together and all of a sudden you're just you're in a utterly you're just in a kaleidoscopic world of taste but i'm thinking i mean th- this is the thing about like peanut butter and pickles or something like oh maybe yeah no, that's not good maybe there's you've never had the, you, there. you've never had a banana and just whacked some peanut butter on there just to get a little extra protein just to try it you know i feel like that's like feeding peanut butter to a dog where the, the dog, the dog will eat it. The dog wants it. It thinks it wants it. Yeah. But then you feed it to the dog and then the dog spends a half an hour going. And you're like, ha ha, you're an idiot. And I feel like if I ate a peanut butter, if I ate a banana with peanut butter on it, I would be probably standing over the kitchen sink going. No, I think you. I don't know. I think you might like. You might like it. All right. I mean, the life is long, and I feel like this might maybe the Beatles and jelly beans, Uh where uh, now every kind of nerd thing I go to, somebody's waiting there with a fluffer nutter sandwich, and I am eventually going to have to say, just out of politeness, I'm going to go. All right. All right. All right. But um, but I'm definitely not going to go buy the ingredients and make one for myself. Okay. But they have been brought to you. Someone went to extra trouble to bring to bring it, and you you avoided them. 
Yeah, but what I'm saying is I never saw the fluffernutter, so I never had to make the decision. Oh. I just, you know, I just went this way and that way. <laughs> I was on my own course. The fluffernutters were also on their own course. They were, they were like a, they were like Binky the Ghost in um, Ms. Pac-Man, and I was playing Ms. Pac-Man, trying to avoid the ghosts, <laughs> not trying to get the ghosts, because I was out of power pellets, <laughs> and so there was no chance. Right. For Binky the Fluffernutter. Hi, Dan and John. I'm Felipe. Felipe or Felipe? Felipe or Felipe. So could be in a lot of places. I'm Felipe from Brazil. Aha! He's from Brazil. Yeah. Fantastic. While listening to the discussion about instant messaging on episode five of your show, John commented that text is the ideal way of debating. (laughs) That really resonated with me as someone who likes arguing a lot. I find that in real life, people are too quick to adopt a conciliatory posture, which can prevent very absurd sounding, but often very true ideas from ever being uttered. Sadly, I think the internet is slowly going the same route. Discussions can get toxic very quickly, and so people revert to only discussing banal stuff. I think this is partly because you can't really show emotion in text, but also because as the internet life blends into real life, everything is becoming very public. What do you guys think? Again, another very prophetically tied. Are you sure you don't read these? Oh, but how, if I, even if I did, how would I, how would I have pursued a line of thinking that, that roped all of those things in because we are just speaking extemporaneously. It does not. It does not seem like I was studying those emails no. and then came in like, okay, here's what we're going to talk about today, <laughs> and I'm going to make it. And because I am such an artful speaker, I'm yeah. going to make it sound you like just wove it together. <laughs> no, I think we're all on the same page. We are all thinking about the same things. That's what it is. Yeah, great minds think alike. Well, this is a show for for our time. Mm-hmm. Precisément. Uh, I totally agree. Um, that. I, I mean, obviously, I prefer arguing on the on the types, ty- type arguing. And there are a lot of people and even people close to me in my life who hate it and want to argue in person precisely because um, the, there, there is this sort of false revolution or resolution that comes when everybody is like either tired of arguing or... An- not up to it emotionally and it's just like oh yeah you're yeah i guess you're right it's the all we can all agree on cheese problem i'm just like well i'm gonna i don't i'm not convinced but i'm gonna say some conciliatory i'm gonna make some cooing sounds at you until you stop and for you to continue persist in this argument past my cooing sounds Mm -hmm. uh then you are you have become a bully or you are being mean now because I've cooed at you three or four times and, and no, you know, no resolution is possible. No greater understanding is possible. It's just like, Oh yeah. I'm coo, 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 coo. Now stop arguing with me. And I just, I hate that. And mm-hmm. I feel like that. And that thing is that happens on text too. We're just like, now wait a minute. The thing you just said doesn't work. And here's why. And the person writes back and is like, you know, I'm done or, I don't have the, I can't think about this right now or what, you know, there's a million ways to get away from, from a, 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 that kind of intellectual frisson. But as, as for like what the future is, 
I really do feel like the current, the lingua franca of now is not going to be the way we speak to one another in the future. It is, it is just a transitional language where we've expanded the franchise. Everybody can speak now. That is an ultimate good. But right now, at least, there are a lot of people that never had a voice that are learning to use their voice. There's a lot of shouting. There's a lot of people that felt like they had a voice and now their voice isn't ranked as highly as they thought it was right, going to be. Right. And they're mad. Everybody's mad. Everybody's, you know, everybody's figuring it out. But I think the generation that's coming up that is steeped in this, um, you know, they're going to, they're going to know what their voice is and, and it isn't going to be so, there isn't going to be all this contention. That's really the contention of now isn't really in the realm of ideas. People aren't really arguing ideas. They're arguing status. They're arguing, um, they're arguing dialect. And I think that that will go. And, and, and reflecting back to the earlier question about kids being exposed to technology. Yeah, I, I've seen your daughter use an iPhone. Hmm. But she has never seen a Disney movie. No, that's not true. She saw Mary Poppins. But she, she has no knowledge of, she's never seen Tangled. and does, I, n- Neither of us even know what that is. But Jonathan Colton has, from the time his kids were very little, has been a, not even an evangelist, but he, his idea about technology is similar to mine. It, it's inevitable. It's a fait accompli. But he puts his money where his mouth is with his own kids. He says, look, my kids are never going to, by the time they're in high school, they will never open a book. And so why insist that they read books? Their classes are going to be conducted on iPads. Their life is going to be led on iPads and in the computer. So why would I limit their screen time? They should just be as articulate in this new world and as versed in it as they can be. And I recoiled at that before I even had a daughter because that was his, that was his premise, even with his three-year-old. Um, and it's not that he gives them completely unlimited access. I mean, access is controlled to a certain extent, but with much freer limits than I, certainly than I allow or would allow. But he believes that it's, um, and and I think in some ways, like he's correct, that the iPad interface is going to be the way kid and my, my daughter understands it intuitively, right? She reaches out to pictures on my phone and uses iPad gesticulation to move them around. And she was never taught that she just saw it and adopted it. Right. So that's going to be the interface. And why would you, why would you make your child less articulate? And I think the reason I control access is as my belief that that it is still in beta and that a lot of the material on the internet that, and I think the majority of material on the internet that's directed at kids is directed at turning kids into consumers as quickly as possible. And I don't want my daughter to 
to interface with the world primarily as a consumer. So, and I think that by the time she's 10, there will be plenty of content on there that isn't directing her immediately to the buy now button. But maybe not. I mean, maybe it will, maybe it's all just going to be, there's just going to be cigarette ads, subliminal cigarette ads through everything. And I, I, hope, I, think, I hope not. I think it's still a world in which adults trying to raise kids in this world can can respectfully disagree because I see what Jonathan Colton is saying, and I know that Dan, you you you're somewhere in the middle. More access. Merlin is definitely like more access to the internet, but but not all the way to like completely uh, believing that there won't be books. But Jonathan makes a compelling case. There won't be books. Why are you... I mean, books will be a thing that sit up on the shelves until we finally move... Until people move one last time and don't bring their books and they all just go into the shredders. And then they are... We keep the ones that are written on vellum. Mm-hmm. But the rest go go away. Well, I mean, this is such an interesting topic for so many reasons. And it's something that I struggle with a lot because I see both your side of it and Colton's side of it. And I've really, I don't feel like I have the right answer. I mean, obviously like I love, I'm, I love books. I've always loved books. And for so many years was this, I don't know if, I guess I, you would call me a serious comic book collector reader and, you know, bagging and boarding books and Nerd. yes. And that, that kind of thing of like collecting these things, I don't know because I, like I, I knew realistically that they were never going to be worth that much money, but there was part of me that's like, well, maybe, they will. maybe, maybe they will. <laughs> that was part of it, you know, and then, I have X-Men 15, right? <laughs> it's never going to be worth a lot of money, but it is, yeah, right. That's going to be worth something. Or like, oh, well, this one, this is where this one character, like, this thing happened to them, and, the, and this is the first time this villain appeared. And, oh, nerd. Yeah, so, like, that, that's <laughs> going to be worth something, right? <laughs> and and then I realized it was more like like a bottle return thing. Like, you might mm. get a couple cents if you save all these bottles and bring them to the recycling center or wherever it is that people would take a, a bottle or a can or something, and that you might get a little tiny bit of money back, but it's not it. The chances of you really making money on anything is, is not probably going to happen, but I continued to do it because it, it was like this thing that I was collecting. And then I got the idea that, well, I'll, I'll save this, you know, for my kids. One of my, <laughs> one of my kids will want to read amazing Spider-Man number one fifty seven volume two. Like, of course, like why yeah, would they, that's, that was the introduction of uh, the amazing Kreskin. Right. That's right. And uh, so it's, you know, like you kind of get into this mindset of it. And in, on the one hand, I kind of see books in the same way of like, why do I want these things that, you know, in, at one point in time, you could say, well, this, this book was owned by this person who, who I happen to be related to. And they took these really interesting notes in the book while they were reading it. And this is a connection to someone who lived a generation or two before I did. And that's, that's kind of fascinating to see what were they thinking when they read this book. And this book, by the way, is still really relevant 
as much as it was back then. And, and I can take this journey through time and read these interesting notes that this person took. And that's a whole different level to it. But, you know, that's going to be a tiny niche. Yes. Yes. It really, really is. So like, why do, why would I have all of these things on my shelf? And I very much got into this philosophy of like, you know, once I've read something, can I give it away? Can I give it to someone else? If it's not something I, I find I will definitely want to return to or reread. And so I found over the years that my attitude just changed to the point where if I'm getting uh, to reading a comic that it's going to be on, I'll read it, download it in Comixology on my iPad. Like I don't, I don't have a physical copy of it anymore. And you know, with, with regular books, I've kind of taken that attitude also, but it's interesting because even though my son who has had, uh, used an iPad since a very early age, two or three years old, uh, and, and loves, I mean, his, his thing is the iPad. Like he would, I, I, I should ask him, but I'm pretty sure if it came down to, you can, you can either have a TV or an iPad like forever. I think he's pretty sure he'd pick the iPad. I'll ask him tonight, but Oh, for sure, I think. Yeah. I mean, and he he loves this thing and there he he does so much with it. And I would have too at that age. And now, but you have the idea that if I was going to hand him down comics, for example, or my little girl too, they would want to read them on the iPad. Like they don't why why would they want to like put them into a bag with a board and take up space in a box and have to organize it and alphabetize it like the app would just do all of that so you know and it's always going to be there we think or it will always be there if he ever wants it that 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 one issue is it's right there tap tap there's the issue see then that is that's what's going to change like you're absolutely right that they will want it on their ipad because because the next iteration of those things is that they're going to be interactive so they're going to look at your, I mean, I've already done this where I reached out to a magazine to enlarge the photograph. Like a real and life magazine and like you, tried I am to reading, zoom, you tried to zoom yeah. the paper. Yeah. Reading a magazine <laughs> and just unconsciously reached out to it and tried to zoom. Right. And then was like, okay, you have colonized my mind now. And, and I see I see why this is important and inevitable. It's, I mean, we all watched Blade Runner back in the early eighties and said, wow, can you imagine being able to zoom in on a photograph like that? Enhance. Yeah. And, and I mean, (laughs) even though, even though somehow in that, that technology, the Blade Runner technology, he was able to look around a corner in a, in a paper photograph. Right which never made any sense to me and was terrible and should, they should have figured out a he should have figured out a way to explain exactly how that happened uh-huh. like you are now what how is that what exactly you're looking around a corner but we will be able to do that as as things get more interactive and as not just i mean as augmented reality gets it becomes the norm and so your kids are going to look at those comic books and go why oh, I can't cross-reference anything. I can't zoom in on the, anything. I can't right. hear, read the backstories. It's all in this book, you know. Uh, yeah, my little so, girl thinks that uh, that that my whenever whenever I'm using a computer, 
she'll tap the screen and like her reaction to it is like, Oh, right. This is, this is that (laughs) thing. You know, and it's already like she can't express it at four years old, but, but the attitude is like, this thing doesn't work that way. And it's not very good. Yeah. Why is this desktop so dumb? Right. Like, I guess it's like, I guess it's like a TV. Yeah. Why do you, why do you have to use this weird mouse? Right. When everything, when it should be smart. But the problem, the problem is this, that what your that our current understanding that all those things will be there forever that is where we are wrong right because the internet companies the current model increasingly and there's and it will not stop is that those things are rented to us and you buy it but it really is rented to you and and right now on my desktop computer which is running os9 Let's really? say it's not really running nine, <laughs> but it's running an earlier, much earlier iteration of 10, um, a ludicrously earlier. Uh, I have 50,000 songs on there. I, I, I went through that thing t- 10 years ago where all my friends, I remember uh, a good friend of mine who is a rock and roll drummer was visiting Seattle on tour and he was visiting a good friend of our, a mutual friend of ours who had one of those rooms in his house that was just a, just a, just walls of CDs. Oh yeah. I was always so and, jealous of those rooms. Well, and he was thrilled because he had an early iPad, iPod that was one of the first like multi gig mm. iPods where it was a big fat iPod. Mm-hmm. And he spent an entire day, an entire, a day off on tour, which are prized, he could think of no better thing than to be in this house and ripping those CDs to his iPod. Oh yeah. Oh, he was so happy and he was going through and like, Oh my God, you have this and you have that. And he was collecting, collecting, collecting. And so I went through that phase and, and I have 50,000 songs in iTunes on this or more than 50,000 songs. I have, I have the history of Western music on this computer, but I have not downloaded the latest version of iTunes. And because if I download the latest version of iTunes, it won't run on this OS. Right. And so if I download this OS, it will freeze my computer and it will become a brick. Mm-hmm. And so those songs are on there. And I don't, again, because I am not a tech person, I do not understand how to get those off of my computer running 10.6 and put them on any one of my devices that would enable me to listen to them or use them. And my past experience is if you start moving them around, all of a sudden you click on a song and they're like, you don't have access to this song. Mm. Because yeah, you, I would, I would, especially now I, in 2015 for those in, in future generations, I would, I would tread very carefully. I, I kind of like the way you have things set up now. Well, but the problem is I want to listen to things on my phone and right. I have all these songs and I'm like, I want to just get those songs. I want to listen to AC Newman's uh, solo first solo record on my phone right now. And if I click on it on the computer, I can listen to it. But if I move it anywhere, all of a sudden I don't have access to it. And so that notion that the, that Apple is saying, 
you have you can listen to this song on up to three computers and then your rights to it die yeah that it that is the model and that is not ownership of a thing not at all that, that is to be covered with eels <laughs> and to be a slave to a certain degree to a company because you clicked on a uh, on a terms of service agreement that you didn't read and we can do nothing about it because there's no there's no due process because those companies are not governments so we can we can only sue them and we can only sue them as a class action mm-hmm. and to say we are suing you because you have effectively rented us these things which we thought we were buying everyone would laugh apple would laugh the courts would laugh they would say ha 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 Fuck you. You have no rights here. This is a commercial exchange. You clicked on the terms of agreement. So our, our ideas of what we own are, are changing fast and are going to change. And I have effectively, in my imagination, in my, mind, in my emotional mind, have abandoned these 50,000 songs. I just feel like one day this computer will stop working and the... And the time I spent collecting that music and, and the legal and the rightful ownership I have and all the hours I spent ripping CDs, um, that entitled me to nothing. Because somewhere up the, the food chain, somebody wrote a line of code mm-hmm. that, that made that the property of Cupertino and not of me. So that's the, that is the infuriating thing. And that's the thing that I... You know, I, I resent the eels so much. Yeah. I do not want automatic withdrawal from my bank account to support my existence in, you know, my, my, uh, not even like high status existence, but just normal status. I am just a regular person who wants to go on the internet and I do not want every single door I come to to ask me the question, do you want to pay for better access mm. or do you want to go in the cattle shoot <laughs> access door? Yeah. And you know, the airlines have pioneered it. It's like, Hey, for $50 more, you can get treated like a subhuman for $80 more. You can get treated like a, uh, uh, like a chattel slave. And for $200 more, you can get treated like someone, uh, in a, the, who, works in the mercury mines <laughs> to get treated like a basic human being. Right. You must already have a status that, that is, uh, are you just a, a, you a silver post. status recently? Silver medallion status on Delta airlines, which entitles me to nothing. Like I am not, <laughs> you even, don't board sooner or anything. I think you do, but that is in itself an insult, right? Like <laughs> I don't like getting on your fart tube sooner is not a prize. <laughs> it means and you're less likely to have to check your carry on. Yeah. Right. Get like being, uh, being at the head of a line of animals trying to force their oversized bags into the tiny above, you know, uh, uh, overhead compartments <laughs> is not a prize. That's a shitty system that should be reformed. It's, it's not, they have created a shitty method where they said, oh, we're going to charge for bags under the plane now. Oh, 
what a surprise. Everyone takes their bag on the plane. Well, now we're going to boarding the plane is going to take 45 minutes longer because it is a Lord of the Flies environment on the plane now. And past a certain point, we have to stand at the gate and check all these bags. Like it has overcomplicated the process by a thousand percent. But rather than eliminate the, the first, you know, like one bag should be free or whatever, rather than do that, they have put a, they put a cost on it, put a cost, not just on the, on bringing your bag, but they've, they've developed this seemingly infinite strata of access Mm -hmm. and charged you for it. So, (laughs) Hey, if we're only, you know, if you fly this many miles or for this many bonus or qualifying miles, which it's not all your miles, just the qualifying miles, you can now have a jump start on the feeding frenzy of getting (laughs) your bag on the plane. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck yourselves. But that's, you know, that uh, I think all the internet companies and and, uh, companies all over are looking at that and saying, wow, huh, another opportunity to charge people. What if we made it? What if, what if the latest iteration of Google brought back different results depending on your zip code or depending on your uh, credit rating for, for lack of a better term. And, uh, you know, I keep saying credit rating and most people are going to say like credit rating. What, uh, what am I doing? Getting a mortgage, but that credit rating mentality mm-hmm. of putting a number to yes. putting a, an SAT score, basically to your viability as a, as a consumer. Citizen. Right, 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 right. And just like, I can, I, I am astonished that that hasn't proliferated. Basically, it's still only being utilized by people who are giving you a loan. But why it it hasn't yet percolated out into every strata of consumer um, life, I don't know, but it will. Yeah, it's a matter of time. Yeah. If you have a 750 credit rating or better, you get Amazon Prime for free or for less. You know, like that type of thing is going to be, that's waiting around the corner for us. Yeah. Bastards. 